Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Clay Jackson, Assistant Professor of Clinical Family Medicine and Psychiatry at the College of Medicine at the University of Tennessee in Memphis, Tennessee, and Dr. Greg Mattingly, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Psychopharmacology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. They will be discussing a multidisciplinary approach to the evaluation and treatment of tardive dyskinesia. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled Tardive Dyskinesia Across Psychiatric Disorders. For more information on Dr. Jackson and Dr. Mattingly, along with links to other tardive dyskinesia programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what these experts have to say about this important topic. Dr. Jackson, Clay, thank you for joining us again for what I think is going to be a a wonderful conversation about the give and take of tardive dyskinesia between both psychiatrists and our primary care clinicians. So great to be with you. And so thank you for having me on today. And I'm looking forward to our conversation because I think it's really going to help us in our individual practices, but also all of our colleagues in taking care of patients. Perfect. Clay, why don't you get us kicked off with maybe our first question or topic? Absolutely. Well, you know, as you're aware, in the last two decades, we in primary care have greatly expanded our use of the uh, antipsychotic group of medications, particularly in what we call the second generation antipsychotics or the atypical antipsychotics, whereas a before time were used probably uh, mostly in the setting of schizophrenia, and that was uh, the lion's share of their use. Now they're being used as adjunctive or augmentation agents for major depressive disorder. We're using them in the treatment of bipolar disorder. And so as we've expanded the use of this group of medications, what are some of the top, maybe the top two or three adverse events that we should be monitoring for in primary care if we're using these medications or if you guys on the psychiatric side are using these medications in our patients? It's a great question. As you've said, the use of atypicals has broadened now to where only a small percent are used for schizophrenia. They're used for augmentative depression, mood swings, PTSD, things of that nature. I like to break down the side effects and keep it simple. And I call them the big three. There's three big side effects that I want you and I to think about whenever we have a patient on an atypical or an antipsychotic. And so the big three are weight gain, metabolic issues, and movement disorders or tardive dyskinesia. You know, each of those can occur gradually over time. It's easy at first. It seems like you're doing okay. Then over time, you look back and you say, oh my gosh, look where we are. So we want to watch weight each and every visit, make sure people aren't gradually kind of packing on those pounds. And we know that a lot of our atypicals, and this may be new for your audience, but a lot of our atypicals, first of all, they dysregulate the insulin receptor, but they also dysregulate the appetite drive within people's brains. So it's not just that they're sloppy eaters or maybe they're eating a little too much. Their brain actually has this satiety that's hard to fix. I've had patients literally have family members have to put locks around the pantry, locks around the refrigerator door because their loved one was so driven to eat when they're on a medicine. So weight gain is something we want to watch continuously when people are on these medicines. The second one kind of comes out of that, but is somewhat different, and that would be metabolic issues. As we, we, I said earlier, you know, these medicines themselves will actually desensitize the insulin receptor. As insulin goes up, glucose stays up, which then leads to a host of vascular and other metabolic issues. So periodic monitoring of lipids, glucose, potentially insulin, looking for metabolic issues. And then finally, movement disorders. 
And movement disorders can take a variety of, of fashions. It can be, you know, the mild Parkinsonism with a tremor. It can be feeling kind of stiff, feeling like I have rocks in my tongue when I'm talking. But then the insidious one, the one that can creep in over time is tardive dyskinesia. And that's the one that unfortunately for some of our patients can be prolonged and long lasting and sometimes irreversible. So these dyskinetic movements that involve the lips, the tongue, the fingers, the various parts of the body where movement disorders can occur. I appreciate that answer to the question because I know that we're accustomed to looking for uh, weight and metabolic parameters. We do that for all of our patients typically anyway, pardon the pun with typical and atypical antipsychotics. But there's one question that, that I sort of have is about the movement disorders. We're not as accustomed to screening for those, at least I'm not in my primary care practice. And so I had some questions regarding tardive dyskinesia versus Parkinsonism, because I know that we're accustomed to diagnosing sort of garden variety or typical Parkinsonism, but also drug-induced Parkinsonism can also occur. So kind of in my mind, tardive dyskinesia is moving too much and movements that can't be stopped. And Parkinsonism can be more associated with not being able to move with fluidity and not being able to, if I could say it this way, not being able to move enough. So in your mind, what are some of the clinical distinguishing factors between Parkinsonism and tardive dyskinesia? I, in my practice, you know, I, I, I look for that classic cogwheel rigidity. I look for a tremor uh, in the patient that may be an intentional tremor. And those are some of the, the classical findings that are associated with Parkinsonism. But as we know, there are a few pathognomonic findings in medicine, and these can be subtle and difficult to, to distinguish. So what are some tips that you could give us in primary care for distinguishing these two very important, often stigmatizing, and very concerning movement disorders that can result uh, from taking pharmacotherapy for mental health disorders? Well, it's a great question, and it's really an important question because tardive dyskinesia and Parkinson's have totally different treatments. The treatment for one can worsen the other one. And so, you know, not all tremors, not all movements are the same. And so let me break it down and try to kind of make it simple. Parkinson's, the first thing you're going to say is, is it a tremor or not? And a tremor should be a consistent, ongoing motion. So if you stick your hand out, you see the person's hand is going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down in a very consistent fashion. So that's a tremor. Tardive dyskinesia is a dyskinetic movement. Instead of being a consistent tremor that when the person holds out their hand, you'll see their hand go up and down, up and down, you'll see it writhing. It's choreiform. It's a dyskinetic movement. And as you said, it, it's a way to think of it's almost too much movement. It's a release mechanism where they can't hold themselves still. And their body is having these abnormal fine jerking movements involving the fingers, involving the tongue, involving the lips. So tremor versus dyskinetic movement is the first key decision. Tremor makes you think of Parkinsonism, a medication-induced tremor, or even just a benign familial tremor. It's a tremor. If it's a dyskinetic movement, I have that writhing, too much motion, it's in an irregular fashion, then you think of tardive dyskinesia. Beyond that, the other fashions you think about, as you said, is with Parkinson's, there's all the other associated symptoms. The slowness of gait, that we call it the festinating gait, the bradykinesia, where people have small movements, micrographia, where their handwriting becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and then that cogwheeling rigidity, the stiffness and rigidity associated with Parkinson's. Tardive dyskinesia usually does not have any of those fashion things. So we see these dyskinetic irregular movements, typically involving, once again, the lips and the tongue, the fingers, can involve other body parts, but it's not associated with stiffness. It's not associated with typical bradykinesia. It's not associated with cogwheeling or rigidity. So 
part? Is it a tremor? Is it a dyskinesia? Does it have the associated things that go with a Parkinson's tremor? Or does it not have those associated factors that would make you think of a tardive dyskinetic movement? I also have this sort of a simplistic way of sort of looking at the patient's face with Parkinsonism. Uh, there's typically, at least in moderate to advanced stages, a paucity of facial expression and sort of a, if I could say, a blank stare sort of uh, for these patients. Whereas with tardive dyskinesia, you know, these patients often can't keep their face still. Like you said, the the mouth and the tongue, the grimacing, the sort of the writhing type of of almost a, a nervous energy that has to be released in a motor fashion. And so I kind of look at the face too as a clue uh, for whether a patient is having a paucity of movement or too much movement that's uncomfortable for them. Is that one simple way to look at it? And does that kind of encapsulate some of the clinical hallmarks that you discussed? I, I think it's a good way to think about it. My only caution there is that the face is one of the most common places to have tardive dyskinesia. The face and hands are the two most common. But 40% of people with tardive dyskinesia have tardive dyskinesia that's below the waist. There you go. So they'll have it in the waist, they'll have it in the trunk, they'll have it in their feet. It may be the person that's sitting there shuffling their feet and they can't keep their feet still as they're sitting and talking to you. That too can be tardive dyskinesia. So we're really just looking for too much movement, inconsistent movement, and movement as a release throughout the body, not just from the collar up, as, as you would say. I've also been taught that there's a perhaps a time difference between drug-induced Parkinsonism versus tardive dyskinesia in terms of onset of therapy. Of course, these are life is comprised Gaussian distribution curves. It's not sacrosanct, but is drug-induced Parkinsonism typically occur earlier in the pharmacotherapeutic course and tardive dyskinesia later? Is that how we usually view it? Or is that not a helpful way to categorize it? I think that's a hard way to parse it out. Both can occur with ongoing anti with antipsychotic usage. They don't usually occur right when you first start a medicine. They usually come in over time. And as you said, drug-induced Parkinsonism may show up a little bit earlier in treatment. Tardive dyskinesia may show up on down the line. But after you've been on antipsychotics for three months, six months, both of those can show up. So I'm not sure the time course is as much of the way I'd separate it as I would just the, the movement itself. Is it a tremor? Is it a dyskinesia? That's your first launching point. Thank you for that help. Because as you said, we need all the help that we can get in primary care. We're, we're busy. We're in you know, 10 to 15 minute visits. And these are very complex neurologic phenomena that we're trying to parse out. So knowing that it's a clinical phenomenology rather than the time course that's most distinctive is truly a help for me in primary care. And I'm sure for the rest of my colleagues. Now, you mentioned something, Greg, that is completely scary to me. And I think probably intimidates a lot of my colleagues as well. And that is some treatments for one uh, may worsen the other. Because in primary care, we often do therapeutic trials. We have what we have framed as a presumptive diagnosis, and then we have a differential that we're working with. And sometimes we'll treat and see what happens. We often do that in mental health care as well. And certainly in the 2000s and 2010s, we were taught that we really needed to be careful with unopposed antidepressants and bipolar disorder because treatment with an unopposed antidepressant might worsen a patient with bipolar disorder. And so this sounds sort of similar that if we're not sure whether something is Parkinsonism or whether it is tardive dyskinesia, we might worsen it. Can you give me some examples? Because I know a lot of my colleagues, if they see someone on mental health medication and they see a movement disorder, they often try anticholinergics first. And it sounds like that might not be, at least it's not best practice or good strategy. Could you specifically talk about anticholinergics and any other treatment pitfalls that we want to avoid? 
Certainly. So as you said, there's a couple of wrong moves when it comes to certain types of tremors. And that's why it's really important to distinguish Parkinsonism versus TD. So the wrong move is anticholinergics. Anticholinergics will help Parkinsonism. They may have some anticholinergic side effects. We know that, but the typical benzotropine, the, you know, those, those types of medicines will temporarily help with Parkinsonism. With tardive dyskinesia, just the opposite. They don't help tardive dyskinesia, and many studies suggest they accelerate the course of tardive dyskinesia. So not only have you missed the diagnosis and mistaken tardive dyskinesia, perhaps for Parkinsonism, but if you add an anticholinergic by mistake, you're actually accelerating the course of tardive dyskinesia. So anticholinergics for TD, don't go there, wrong move. The American Psychiatric Association came out with a statement piece a year ago that said anticholinergics not to be used for tardive dyskinesia. The other mistake I see, Clay, is that for Parkinsonism, pulling the dose of the antipsychotic down will quite often help with a Parkinsonian-type tremor. Okay. Whereas pulling the dose down of an antipsychotic does what to tardive dyskinesia? Probably makes it worse. It temporarily unmasks it. Yeah. So temp temporarily, it looks like, you know, it's probably the right thing in the long run, but temporarily, these dyskinetic movements become unmasked and you actually see more of them. I think that's such a great point, Greg. Uh, sorry for interrupting because, you know, in primary care, one of the clinical principles that we operate on in many disease states is if we see an adverse event of a drug, you either stop it completely or wean it down. It's just common sense. But as you're saying, that might temporarily make things worse if we do that in a case of TD. I also wanted to mention just the concept of dystonia because I remember from my psychiatry rotation, patients who came in and they had neuroleptic associated dystonia. And I remember IM diphenhydramine and anticholinergic was a miracle. And those patients, uh, you know, they couldn't move their head and neck. And then suddenly they were back to normal again within minutes of administration of IM uh, anticholinergic therapy. And I, I think that's where some of us get this mistaken notion that here's a movement disorder. And so we give an anticholinergic. I, I think there's some residual in our minds. But as you bring up, I think it's quite important to understand if we do have a diagnosis of TD, that uh, the anticholinergic therapy not only is not helpful, but, but can be harmful. So I just wanted to, to bring that one up as a, a ghost in my mind of, of remembering it, it helps some patients, but it doesn't help all. You know, I'd never put it that together, but we've all seen that miracle case in our training. You're right, that somebody had the dystonic, we gave them the anticholinergic, boom, they were better. So anticholinergic is good for dystonia and involuntary muscle spasm, good for Parkinsonian type tremors, may be helpful there. Wrong treatment for tardive dyskinesia with these dyskinetic movements. Fantastic. I wanted to ask you a few things about risk factors, because obviously in primary care, we're managing risk factors for cardiovascular disease, we're managing risk factors for coronary artery disease, and many other end organ damage type syndromes. Are there any patients for whom, if we're looking at, say, an MDD with a treatment failure, maybe a treatment-resistant depression person, and we're thinking of augmenting with an atypical antipsychotic, are there any patients that you'd say, no, nah, I'm not sure that's a great idea because this patient might be at increased risk for tardive dyskinesia? Anybody that sort of rings alarm bells in terms of the onset of therapy where you might choose a different augmentation strategy or say for PTSD, you might say, no, let's double down on the non-farm therapies or let's do something different because this might not be an ideal patient for an antipsychotic. Certainly. So a number of studies have shown the same thing. And those can be studies here in the United States. It can be studies in a mental health practice. It can be studies in a primary care clinic or the VA setting. And they all show the same thing. 
The people that have higher risk of developing tardive dyskinesia when they're on an antipsychotic, first of all, women have a higher risk than men. So if you've got women, you put them at a little higher category for it. And then older women in particular, and a lot of studies, Clay will say postmenopausal women. So as women get older, their brain becomes more vulnerable. Hormonal changes can increase that propensity for tardive dyskinesia. If somebody's had an earlier exposure with a medicine and had an extra pyramidal side effect, if they did have a dystonic reaction, if they did have akathisia, which is the sense of restlessness, if they did have Parkinsonism on an earlier antipsychotic, we know their brain, we know that motor strip is vulnerable to other movement disorders. They have higher rates of ongoing um, development of tardive dyskinesia. This is the one that's a conundrum, is people with mood disorders have a higher rate of developing tardive dyskinesia than people that have purely psychotic illnesses. So we use atypicals. I use them. You see them in people with complex mood disorders, depression, bipolar, bipolar spectrum. They've become one of our go-to medicines. But remember, our patients with mood disorders do have higher rates of developing tardive dyskinesia over time. The last two risk factors involve, involve kind of the vulnerable population. If somebody already has a history of any type of neurologic injury, if they've had significant head trauma, if they've had prior small strokes, if they have some type of neurologic injury, they have a higher risk. Their brain is more vulnerable. And then the last one is individuals with developmental disabilities. And as Clay knows, my youngest child has overcome a lot of developmental disabilities, has come a long way in life. But I can remember seeing a lot of the people she went to school with who were on antipsychotics who had already developed dyskinetic movements associated with an antipsychotic. So I'll wrap it up. Older women, prior history of some type of extranormal movement disorder on an antipsychotic, mood disorders, the vulnerable brains involving neurologic injury or individuals with developmental disabilities are people you want to pay a special attention to. You know, I'm thinking of patients that are younger but may have had traumatic brain injury and PTSD associated with combat uh, if we're treating a, a veteran's population. This might be a patient that would be at significant risk or, or increased risk. And so I'm just thinking of patient types in my own practice that your counsel is certainly helping me to, to frame in a different way in terms of, of risk factors. Help me scale this. You know, we know that typical antipsychotics are associated with higher rates of TD and atypicals are associated with lower rates, uh, but it's not a get out of jail free card in terms of monitoring adverse events, is it? I, I've read that um, second generation or so-called atypical antipsychotics have a lower rate, but it's about maybe a third of the rate of typicals, but it's still there, isn't it? What's sort of the, the, the prevalence or annualized incidence of tardive dyskinesia in these populations? And can you make some comparisons there to help our primary care colleagues to sort of scale this? I'll take you all back to your medical stool rotations, or I'll take you back to the last time maybe you rotated through a nursing home where we're seeing people in a, a nursing home population. If you've been on a traditional high-potency antipsychotic, the haloperidols, your lifetime chance of getting tardive dyskinesia was about one in three. It was about 30% of people would get tardive dyskinesia with chronic ongoing lifetime use. We know the newer atypicals tend to be less prone to doing that. They're less just pure dopamine blocking agents. And so the studies now with our newer atypicals show that it's probably somewhere around five to 8% lifetime prevalence. So if you've got 10 people, 15 people that are on some type of atypical, these newer versions, Clay, that means you've got one of those people that probably has tardive dyskinesia. So if you just kind of think in your practice, I know these are medicines you see quite frequently these days. For every 10 to 15 people you see, there's probably one of them with tardive dyskinesia. Well, that certainly helps us to understand how we need to 
been watching for it, and also how we need to inform patients when they begin therapy. Obviously, if we don't talk about this, they're going to go to the pharmacist anyway, and their pharmacist is going to say, oh, I didn't know you had psychosis. You're on an antipsychotic. So I'm accustomed to that sort of feedback. So I try to talk to patients about this is a different type of mood disorder medication, but we need to make sure that we talk about TD and inform consent. Just wanted to ask two further questions, and, and I know that it's time for a close, but what are some good screening tools or screening practices? We talked about clinical phenomenology. Are there sort of patient-administered or clinician-administered analytic tools that we can use to help us screen for TD? Certainly. So the kind of the gold standard these days in clinical practice is a scale we call the AIMS. It can be done by a physician, but it can be done by any medical professional within your office. It can be done by a med tech, a case manager, a nurse, a nurse practitioner. And it's just simply a screening tool that walks you through the body. Do I see anything in the lips? Do I see anything in the fingers? Do I see anything in the trunk, in the middle of the body? Do I see anything in the feet? And you just scale it from a none to severe. And it gives you a numerical ranking of, hey, I see TD or, hey, I do not see it. And then you've got your bases covered. If you're doing telemed, we've developed a scale that can be done at home by the patient. We call it kind of the blue man screener and ask the patient to stop and pause and look. Take a look at your lips. Do you see anything in your tongues, your lip, your mouth? Take a look at your fingers. Do you see anything there? Take a look at your trunk. Do you see anything there? Take a look at your toes and your feet. Do you see anything there? And that self-screening tool actually was almost as good as a physical exam for detecting tardive skinesia if you ask the questions. That's fantastic advice. Where is the blue man screen uh, available? Where can we find that? You know, it's published, it's online. Um, I've been a part of a group called Minding TD, um, and that website has that as a resource available. Thank you so much. Is it public domain? Can we just download it or, or understand how to use it by the website? It is public domain. Thank you so much for that contribution, because I know many of us are turning to telemed, not just with the pandemic. I think post-pandemic, we'll see telemed as, a, as an integral part of most of our practices, both in subspecialty mental health care and in primary care. So having a tool that's been validated in a telemed setting or telehealth setting is so important. Well, finally, can you offer us some hope? I was taught that tardive dyskinesia is irreversible, but I've heard that there are other medications now, such as the VMAT2 inhibitors that can be helpful for tardive dyskinesia. What's your experience clinically and what can you tell us about potential for treatment? So Clay, this is probably a take home for everybody out there. I was just speaking Tuesday for the Missouri Nurse Practitioners Association, and these are primary care nurse practitioners. They're in the trenches, went down to Farmington, Missouri, one of our rural communities, and we talked about this. We talked about what they see in group home settings, what they see in nursing home settings, what they've seen in primary care settings, and they saw the rates of tardive dyskinesia that they weren't expecting to see once they started looking for it, and then they were sharing the stories about how using this new group of medicines, the VMAT2 inhibitors, we have two of them that are approved for tardive dyskinesia how it improved the quality of the life of the patients they were seeing. Patients who had been aspirating because of swallowing issues, people who were embarrassed because of these dyskinetic movements involving their mouth and their lips and their tongues, uh, patients whose family members came to them and thanked them for putting them on treatment to help get rid of the tardive dyskinesia. Well, those two medicines, they, they both end in azine. They're hard to pronounce, uh, but their generics end in azine. And then are they oral medications? Are they daily? Are they sub-Q? Are they IM? How are these administered? And should we refer for folks that, that need to be treated, or do you envision a scenario where a primary care clinician would be using these VMAT2 inhibitors to treat patients with TD? If I think anybody seeing people that are on atypicals or antipsychotics as a class, you should be a provider that's comfortable using these. They're oral medications. One's given once a day, one's given twice a day. You slide up on the dose to find the right dose. 
and they have significant improvement of tardive dyskinesia. Once again, the, the Missouri Nurse Practitioners Association, these young women were talking about the improvements they had seen when they prescribed these medicines for patients that they were taking care of in clinic settings, nursing home settings, group home settings, and then talking about the improvement they'd seen. One of the things I enjoy most about participating in CME events, even on the speaker side of the dais, is learning myself and learning from expert colleagues like yourself, Greg. And I want to thank you for the time that you spent today helping us to understand a little bit more about how to distinguish tardive dyskinesia from other movement disorders that we might see in primary care. Also, how they might be examined from a diagnostic standpoint, not just from a qualitative standpoint or the pattern recognition standpoint, but some of the analytical tools or validated tools that we can use, such as the Blue Man approach and also the AIMS, reminding us of that classic scale that can be used to pick up on involuntary movements. You've also offered us a, a great practice point in terms of avoiding the, the pitfall of using anticholinergics when it's actually tardive dyskinesia. You've pointed to some clinical separation points between the commonly confused diagnoses of Parkinsonism versus tardive dyskinesia, and then also offered us a little bit of hope that new medications such as the VMAT2 inhibitors can be helpful for these patients and offer improvement when they've had such a stigmatizing and devastating adverse event occur from pharmacotherapy for whatever their mood disorder was that drove them to uh, seek pharmacotherapy with typical or atypical antipsychotics. I just want to thank you for your time and ask if you have any further take-home points or encouragement for our colleagues in primary care that are dealing with patients who have challenging mental health conditions and also we're using medications that frankly offer a lot of therapeutic power, but also have some concerning adverse events. Now, Clay, I just want to thank you for joining me once again. I, you know, you and I have known each other for years and it's a partnership. And I think this is the model we want to have in our communities. We all work together. None of us can do it alone. And it's great to see people get back on the right path in life. So thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you very much, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Mattingly. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on tardive dyskinesia, please click the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.